TikTok, and US lawmakers are to consider two bills on goods made in Xinjiang. The news from RTHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. John Culkin came to Hong Kong with his family in 1969 at the age of 18. His father was in the British Royal Air Force or RAF. John's family would return to the UK after the tour of duty, but John Culkin has remained for more than 50 years. In the 1970s, he worked for Rediffusion Television or RTV, later ATV. Radio Hong Kong, before it added the television part and became RTHK, Commercial Radio, and later TVB. Some of these media outlets John worked for simultaneously in both TV and radio news. Later, he became the voice of the government public announcements and TV commercials. At RTHK, he's often been the continuity man on the weekend. I joined John Culkin in the studio to hear about the people he interviewed a short stint as a window cleaner, and the famous singer he regarded as his most boring interview. My father was military, and all of his brothers are all down the mines, and uh, his his uh, elder brother was actually head of the Durham pit. So they're all coal miners. And because my father was military, he sort of got out of the, uh, the northern scene and was able to travel with my mum. But they went to Germany and... Let me see, I'll be seven, about seven years old. So I had to stay in uh, Sunderland with my grandmother, and I went to uh, a Geordie school for uh, two years from seven to nine. But it was the best years of my life because my grandfather was a tugboat captain of the, the Roker Park, it was called, and it was the most unusual tugboat you'd ever see. It had two wheels at the side. And we used to go out to the North Sea and he'd get up at four in the morning, very early. And I remember him uh, walking down the street and I'd be following him. He'd be in his suit. He'd, he'd be all dressed up and he'd be smoking away his capstan cigarettes. <laughs> and we'd get to the, uh, the River Weir, get on this boat and go right out into the middle of the North Sea. So you're in the middle of the North Sea about seven o'clock in the morning to meet these big oil tankers coming in. And we used to sit on the wheels, obviously turned off, waiting for the boat, and fish. And they caught fish for breakfast with all the other crew members. And this tea which had condensed milk in it. And I'll never forget. It's funny, in Hong Kong, that's how a lot of the Chinese love their tea, their English tea, with condensed milk. So that was my upbringing in the north of England. When were you born? I was born in 19... <laughs> Ooh, that was a sneaky one. 1951. Uh, in hospital or? Uh, no, at home. It was a home birth. My mother's called uh, Jean, Jean Culkin, and uh, she was uh, Newcastle-born. And uh, during the war, she was uh, working for some factory, and uh, she'd met my father, who was uh, just going to the war. Uh, his name was Jack. He actually had the name John George Mackle Culkin, but he preferred just Jack. And he was just a junior in the uh, Royal Air Force, and they met... And it was literally just one night at a dance hall. Nothing happened like in those days. And it was letters. They wrote letters to each other. And then after the war, they got married straight away and ran away together because the families weren't in agreement with it. So they went to uh, the south of England and got married. 
So are you a single child? No, I have a sister. You're an Air Force child. You don't go to Germany, but do you th did you then travel around with your parents? Yes, Germany was the only one I never went to initially, but they did an another tour in Germany. The thing was I was too young to go to the schools there would only accept uh, boarding at that time. So my sister went to Wilmshaven, which is in the north of Germany, so I had to stay back. But the second time we went, I did go. It was at uh, Hildesheim, which was near Hanover. And I went to school there in Germany for three years. So you come to Hong Kong, was it in 1969? Yeah, 1969. We'd come from Scampton, RAF Scampton, which was in Lincolnshire. My dad was based there for a short time. And that was the Vulcan, the V-bombers, massive atomic. They, they carried the atomic bomb. I actually saw one. My father, I went to see him one time in the hangar, and he just pointed out that big black thing over there is an atomic weapon, which were they put onto the Vulcans. And uh, my schooling days then, so I'd be about 15, 16. And we actually had time off at the secondary school when the military had what they called the Mickey Finn, which was a full-blown-out alert. So all these Vulcan aircraft had to take off at the same time, and they had to get seven off the ground within a certain period of time. So you can imagine the whole base would shudder and this noise of these massive Vulcan bombers and my father was in charge of one team, which was in charge of one aircraft. So I had to polish his buttons, his military uniform, polish his shoes every night, and they would be hanging there in case he got called up for the Mickey Finn like three. It was always early morning, about three or four in the morning. So he'd just get into his uniform straight away and be really smart, put his shoes on, and then a, a Land Rover would be waiting for him and drive him off. Did you ever entertain thoughts of uh, joining the military? I did. I nearly joined the Royal Navy. Thank God my father stopped me. I was very, very close. I, nearly, I wanted to see the world because I, I wasn't happy in England because we did travel around the world, and I loved Asia. And uh, so Hong Kong was a joy for me. But I, I really nearly did join the Royal Navy. Oh, that would have been disastrous. Why? Uh, it just wasn't me. I'm not, in myself, I'm not military. I mean, once I got to Hong Kong, I, could, I was old enough to get away from the military side, like RAF uh, Kai Tag. I hardly ever went there. My father would always invite me to these functions they would have at the mess, they called it. Uh, I, I didn't want to do it. I would rather mix with uh, the local guys and go out to... Yeah, one shy of those places, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you come here at the age of 18. What months did you... When, when was that, in 1969? Uh, it was September, September 1969. There was uh, nothing for me to do here, really. I was not trained in anything. I wanted to be a car mechanic in the UK, and I couldn't get uh, the funding to stay there, so I just came over to Hong Kong. That was the right decision for me. So I went to school, but only for a couple of months at St. George's. Their curriculum was totally different to what I'd been used to. And there was a trainee school teacher there, Jean Cunningham, and she knew somebody at RTV because she lived next door to him, Rod Thurley. He was from Australia, Tasmania. And uh, she said, look, I know him. Why don't you go up for an interview? So I did, and the interview was very, very quick. It was in Broadcast Drive. After five minutes, he said, yeah, you're hired. You'll be a reporter. So within the week I was there reporting um, learning the ropes I knew nothing about it so I, I really learned from scratch and after one year there uh, newsreader didn't turn up so Rod said go on you give it a go tonight and I was so nervous but after a few minutes I just settled right into it and loved it 
Yeah, because you've talked to me before about how you actually are reading almost two lines ahead of what you're actually speaking. It's a technique which uh, they taught me there, and there was no autocue. Autocue was years away. It was something, once you got it down to a T, it was quite easy. You're just reading two lines ahead in your mind, but you're actually speaking the actual sentence, but you know what's coming up. So you can look at the camera and you've more or less memorized that two lines ahead. And it's a lot of concentration. And in those days, a, a half-hour bulletin was really a half-hour bulletin. There was no off to Chim Sarchuri and Joe Bloggs reporting from there. And they were all that's on video, so you can sit back and relax. We didn't have that. We had the film report, but you had to voice that report as well. They call it sound on film. So you're literally reading for half an hour in that bulletin. You were shattered after it. It was quite a, an, a, an experience. Yeah, what did you do if things went wrong? tried to make a joke or <laughs> smile <laughs> many things went wrong all the time the the greatest was when they put me onto the morning show and they had a, a satellite news program you're talking about the early 70s so it was stuff coming in you didn't know what it was but you had an idea it would be uh, about one story this in the news so you 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 were reading up on what the news was before and then you see the film coming through and we do it live the first time around. So you really had to make up and have some scripts maybe about that subject that was going out. And half the time, a lot of mistakes were made. I had one cameraman falling asleep because he was uh, tired. <laughs> this is RTV. The camera was just going up. So I was going down in my monitor, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so I was literally getting off my seat and standing up. And they were trying to wake him up. The funniest thing. That's classic. <laughs> yes, well, <it> just <laughs> disappearing off the TV screen. Yeah, you were literally because it's the other way. So you're 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 going down. So you're trying to stand up and keep reading while they're trying to make, wake him up. And I remember his name. His name was Jigo Lee, and he's still a friend of mine. He lives in Beijing. He's a funny guy. And then there was the sets would just uh, disappear behind you. They'd fall down. Sets would literally fall down. We're actually chatting here in a, a medium-sized studio, I'd say, and we've got bigger studios on the other side where, you know, there's even a, a big piano in the one and, and you can uh, probably have a little bit mini concert in there, whereas this is uh, smaller. But what was the size of your TV studio? It was huge. It was a very big studio, RTV. They, they had um, only two or three studios, and in the evenings it would be used after us for their evening Chinese program. So we had to clear out of the, the seats and then more or less they'd be changing the set. That's why the sets were so fragile. What did you do? Wheel them on or? They just wheeled them on. Mm. Just wheeled them on. And what would they be? Photographs behind you or? It, it was just photographs of the Hong Kong uh, scene and uh, stuff like that. Cause a chroma key was very big then. Chroma key? It's, uh, so you could superimpose, uh, pictures behind you. So you couldn't wear, I think it was blue or green, because if you wore blue or green, it would just, you, it would make you look invisible. So it would just be your, if you had a green jacket on, it would just be your head showing. So you had to coordinate with them what chroma key they were using. So they could, uh, <laughs> put images behind you of uh, what they were talking about. So you, you would be doing, um, what, what would your shift be? Uh, when I first started, I was doing the, the day shifts reporting and then reading in the evening. And did, was the news program given a set name or? Um, I can't remember. News at 7.30, I think it was. And then I'd do the late news. So it was a long day. And then you'd be up again at uh, nine the next day reporting. But then when they started the satellite shows, they put me early morning. So I'd be there like 4.30 in the morning. 
Now, when you, you say that um, you obviously grew up in northern England, but you don't have any even no. trace of a Geordie accent, the voice that I'm hearing now has become sort of well-known for, you know, not only broadcasting, but also the, the government broadcast. You're, you're the voice of many adverts and documentaries. Did you work on that voice, or is what I'm hearing is Colkin original? I would say it's a Colkin original, you know. I didn't, I didn't copy anybody. But I've, I've asked many of the clients that I've had over the years why, and they said because you don't sound too English and you don't sound too American. They termed it mid-Atlantic. Now you've also got uh, you've got a daughter and a son. So can mm -hmm. you talk to me a little bit about that and your wife, if that's okay? Yeah. <laughs> I met uh, Flora. She was a runner-up in the Miss Hong Kong in 1981, and of course I was at the height of my career with uh, TV, and uh, I was invited to all these things. And she was opening up a department store in Chim Sa Choi. So she had massive posters everywhere, and I'd seen them and said, mm, I'm going to meet this girl. So I was invited, and then she was cutting the ribbons, the opening ceremony, and we started talking and um, nattering away, and then we actually broke off from the group because it was so boring, and then I had a coffee. And we decided to meet up later, and, and then, uh, yeah, two fantastic kids, Justin and Emma. In the 70s, uh, this is an amazing story, because Hong Kong is a vibrant city, and people come and go you you make friendships and you lose them they're here for two years and they move on and i was used to that with my dad traveling around i'd make a friend and you've got to move on after two years two and a half years that that was your tour you know like hong kong they only did two and a half years and they were gone in 76 i was interviewing um a health club person with joanne drew called a guy called eddie phillips he's an australian guy and a year later he opened up philip wayne I helped him with that. I was the MC for all his uh, opening parties. He really appreciated that. Uh, we became the best of mates. And amazingly, 42, 43 years on, we're still the best of mates. Some people liked him, some didn't. He was a businessman. Now, there's a picture of you with Eddie Phillips, I think, and, and it's also Goldie Horn and Kurt Russell. Once Philip Wayne got going, it was massive. He hit it at the right time. He would... Um, so what was Philip Wayne? It was a health club. It's still going now. He sold it to a Chinese enterprise, I think in 2010. So he built it up over 30 years. Health clubs, spas, not only in Hong Kong, but he built it up throughout Asia, in Bangkok, Singapore. And he would fly me down. So I would do the opening as the MC for all the clubs that he was opening. Free of charge, I might add. <laughs> Maybe that's why we're still the best of mates. <laughs> and uh, he would get celebrities come in. And at that time, it was uh, something we were doing with the Peninsula and, and him. And uh, he had Goldie Horn and uh, Kurt Russell. Now, with your military connections, you were able to use, you used helicopters for some of your reporting? Well, my dad, being in the RAF here, when I started working at RTV, he had all the connections. So he put me in touch with the PR for the military here. And it was a team of about four or five guys. And I got to know them very well. My dad introduced them to me. So working at RTV, they said, look, you know, because your dad and stuff, we can do stuff which we can't usually do. So we'll get you up in a helicopter. And, and then my news editor at the time, he said, can you get a cameraman up so we can get general shots of Hong Kong from the air? Because it's expensive to, to hire a helicopter if they had any of those days, like uh, commercially. So we had cameramen up there filming different parts of Hong Kong. 
all thank you very much to the military and you know giving them credits but how would you report from up there from a sound perspective no, that, that wasn't reported it was just yeah. a general background but then we started doing other stuff because they gave me rtv gave me a program which was i look back and it was awful it was called this hong kong it was a 10 minute slot every sunday and it was just general things happening in hong kong so we would figure out programs to do with the military for example, they would drop me in the South China Sea and then do a, a search and air sea rescue. They would film it all or we would film it all from another helicopter. So I, I remember that one because the water was cold and they said that the suit was watertight. <laughs> but I could film one leg going down and the helicopter had gone. It was like you're in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> one leg was going down. I, thought, I can feel water. Hang on a minute. Then the other one was going down. And I thought, I'm going to drown here. Then they came back and I spoke to the guy later. He said, no, no, it's just buoyancy. Don't worry about it. Miss Hong Kong So there was a 10-minute slot about dropping John Culkin in the sea and, and <laughs> extracting him again. I would the most again. ridiculous <laughs> things. I would... Uh, and this is when? How long have you been in the job by then? I'd been in about five years then. So, it's, the, just a, it's, so it's just a... This Hong Kong would be 10-minute film on a certain subject. On a certain subject. I would do window cleaning in the highest... Highest building. I think it was the Connaught Centre. <laughs> they got me to clean the windows. And of course I had the song when, at the end of it, When I'm Cleaning Window. Now I go window cleaning to earn an honest bob. For a nosy parker it's an interesting job. Now it's a job that just suits me. A window cleaner you would be if you can see what I can see. When I'm cleaning windows. You know, and it, it's just... And I was scared stiff. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, what, I mean, what was the concept? Just, just it was, it was, it was the John, something in but it wasn't Kong. really this Hong Kong, was it? It was the, no, it it was the John Culkin show. <laughs> it became the John Culkin show. It's just the everybody watched it, and it was, it was just so badly done when I look at the editing because I was doing the editing because the other it was just left to me. So I learned how to edit all the sound on film and do this all by myself. And this would be 1978, mm -hmm. and it, it just became popular that they, they had people writing in and saying that's funny what's he going to do next this idiot you know and i was like <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was being towed behind a boat with um these kites one time kites <laughs> you know these flying kites and they towed me behind a boat and of course it's safe but then you get right up they've got them in phuket i see them going up but they're oh, parachutes like paragliding now. paragliding but these were kite big hang gliders the hang gliders and this thing went up and suddenly it turned over and i went straight into the water and I was all attached. I couldn't breathe because it had turned around. I didn't know which was up or down. And <laughs> you're laughing, but I only just made it out of the bed. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, my God. I nearly drowned. And that was the last program <laughs> of this Hong Kong. R.I.P. John Culkin. <laughs> so how long did this uh, show run? It went on for about three years. Oh. And then we had another show because I left. To, to try to get work in UK and came back with my tail between my legs and they started up a new show with Julie Mullins through the and, looking and glass. Who was Julie Mullins? She was the weather girl and uh, she, did, she did continuity and she was quite well known as the RTV weather girl. So they put us together and we did uh, through the looking glass and again after the few months I turned it into my thing doing and I had a friend at Westminster Travel David Pettigrew and he said look we can take you around the world and you can film parts and then it promotes Westminster Travel credits at the end so we did we went all over the world with a show and the title of the show was Through the Looking Glass so, we were, oh right so you had a, a pretty liberal remit yes, on what you did so for two years I was in Hong Kong maybe one week every month and getting paid and just 
we're being paid to film in exotic places. That's why I see these travel shows now, and I think you lucky people, because we had a great time. New Caledonia, Scotland we went to. New Caledonia is in, right down in Nemea, in, uh, off the coast of, northern coast of Australia. We did go to Australia, we went to London, we went to... Uh, and what uh, was it, I mean, it was nice to travel all over the place, but I mean, through the looking glass, was it meant as a travel show? Not or, initially. Uh, or politics or what? Again, it was um, supposed to be about what's happening in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> but we were making a holiday destination show. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting Those kids were fast as lightning In fact it was a little bit frightening But they fought with expert timing Did you ever do work as a DJ outside? Yes, I uh, did the clubs in the early days where we had the the war going on, of Vietnam War, and then you had the Americans here, R&R, Rest and Recreation. So that was a really good time for a DJ, not not a good time for those guys, I suppose. But this is where they came to have fun, and they didn't know what they were going back to, so they really had wild fun. And I did a few clubs, uh, never in one chai, but uh, in Chim Sa Chua, there were quite a few. In Austin Road, there was uh, one I worked at, I think one was called the Yellow Submarine. That was in Chimsa Choi. But uh, the scene was the big one in the peninsula. So, John, tell me about some of the stars you interviewed. Well, it's kind of strange in those days because you're going back to the 1970s and Hong Kong didn't have the big venues it's got today. So you were stuck with places like Lee Theatre and the, the City Hall and all they could accommodate really was maybe 500 people, 600 people. So you found that the big stars passing through on their way to Japan would just stop over for a night and just see Hong Kong. But uh, some of them did perform. Like um, there was the Four Tops, uh, Bee Gees I interviewed, Temptations, Shirley MacLaine. She was fantastic, actually. Frank Highfield, do you remember him? He was the yodeler. All right, no. He performed. It was it was sad, actually, because he couldn't yodel that night, and that was his main thing. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. And then, of course, there was uh, Cliff Richards and uh, Olivia Newton-John. They passed through. Okay, tell me about Cliff Richard. He was the most boring guy I've ever interviewed, uh, even, <laughs> even at that time. He, he wanted to concentrate on his religion. Not, not that I'm blasting that, but it didn't make a sort of uh, nice listening for the people who wanted to hear him singing and stuff, he, on his Christianity. So we concentrated on his uh, backup girl at that time, which was Olivia Newton-John, and she was a brand-new singer to the scene and so very young a, and fresh. Yeah. So she was a kind of warm-up act. She was a warm-up act, yeah, and nobody ever heard of her. And I think he got a bit annoyed because people sort of move over to her to interview her more than him. What year was Cliff coming through? That would be around about 1973. I'm not sure of the time. But uh, I know he performed at the Lee Theatre. And I was, I was doing that for commercial radio because they would uh, sponsor most of the shows with the promoter so we could get all the interviews with them and get free passes for the shows.
Mm-hmm. They were fun. And that similar era. In that similar era, and they performed at the Lee Theatre. I remember seeing them along with the Four Tops. Whatever happened to the day we met on Main Street? All we ever wanted to do was sing and dance. Maybe we could go back again and look for Main Street. But it's sad as it may be. But I think with the Four Tops, not the original Four Tops, because they they were changing all the names and so you keeping had them. Five or six tops. Yeah, you had <laughs> so many tops. <laughs> Four tops, but not the original tops. <laughs> and Temptations were. Um, so you had everybody in the commercial radio studio. No, no, no. We'd interview them uh, outside at the venue mostly with um, the Ewer recorder. That was a, a massive recorder you had to take with it. it weighed a ton because uh, cassette recorders were only just coming in. This is how far we're going back. Cassette recorders were only just coming in, so we had to take the Ewer. And that was very good sound quality, but it was very heavy. It weighed a ton. You had to carry that all around with you. So that was reel-to-reel? Reel-to-reel, yeah. And then how would you put the interview together? I had to edit it, and um, I was overlooked by um, uh, the boss at Commercial Radio at that time was Nick DeMuth. Nick DeMuth, he would uh, always come in and make sure that he got what he wanted because, of course, they were working with a promoter and you had to publicise them as well. Now, when you were editing, tell me about that process. Editing in those days was uh, kind of weird when you look back today with all the uh, digital editing you have. Yeah, you had to cut the tape and splice it together. So if you made a mistake, you were uh, in trouble. You're also the voiceover king. Yes, isn't that... <laughs> that, that is something that came about in uh, 1986 because, like I said, I, I never really regarded myself as a journalist, but I was doing that kind of work. And my calling was for television <laughs> presenting uh, and doing voice work. So that actually started before I left TVB, and I started my company in 1992. And I found that by 1996, at the end of my TV career, I was doing better than the TV side of it, so I decided to concentrate on that. And then the government liked my voice. I became the voice of the government uh, at, at one point through SARS. They do a, a commercial every day because they were so worried about it. And uh, we were putting out stuff like every day a different commercial was coming out for radio and TV. They call them radio APIs, approved public information. Always use a suitable working platform. When working at height, safety comes first. And so to the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers, isolated thunderstorms tomorrow morning, and the showers will be more frequent. Temperatures ranging between 26 and 30 degrees. It's 28 at the moment, humidity 86%. RT8K News. 
My thanks to RTHK colleague, the voiceover man and broadcaster, John Culkin. John is currently in the UK, but I look forward to his return to Hong Kong sometime. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. In my profession, I'll work hard, but I'll never stop. I'll climb this blinking ladder till I get right to the top. An old maid walks around the floor, she's so fed up. One day I'm sure she'll drag me in and lock the door. When I'm cleaning windows, down, leave that day. Lion, and I'm usually quite laid back, but you can count me in to fight COVID-19. Here are my tips. Don't go to work and seek medical advice promptly if you're unwell. Avoid eating out or going out if it's not necessary. Keep at least one meter apart from others and avoid contact with people who show symptoms. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. These are the tips for us to prevent COVID-19. The weather today is mainly cloudy with occasional showers and a few thunderstorms. Showers will be heavy at times in some areas and the temperature right now is 27 degrees Celsius, relative humidity at 94%.